to invite all of you to read with me Hebrews 9:28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. This time our brother Dean will bring us God's message. Good to see Alex right up here in the front row this morning. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, church. We spoke on this subject. Um, I was amazed to see the date. It was back in November of 2006, and uh, probably none of you would remember that. Um, I like the subject so much that it, we thought we would review it this morning again with a few alterations. You know, when the angels looked down on that scene 2,000 years ago, they were absolutely amazed. The, the subject of the Passion Week and the history of the Passion Week of Jesus takes up a third of the Gospels. So God has to tell us something that's very, very important. As they looked down on that scene on Golgotha, here they saw their commander... They're on a cross. Their commander, Jesus Christ. They also witnessed the, un- the fallen angels with the former Lucifer, now Satan. And the great controversy battle was on in all its fullness and all its ugliness. The battle was on, and the question comes to us, how can it be that a man who dies wins a victory? like to explore that this morning with you for the next few few moments. But first, would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Eternal Father, this morning we thank you so much that we're here. We thank you for the words of Scripture. We're so thankful that you gave your life for us, that we can have the hope, the absolute hope of eternal life, if we but choose you in the great controversy between Christ and Satan. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been so tired that you could hardly go on? Scripture tells us Jesus was exhausted, anticipating the weight of the sins of the world that would be upon him. Have you ever been cold, really cold, without adequate clothes? Scripture tells us it was cold that night. Have you ever been repeatedly accused falsely? Scripture says that happened as well. Have you ever been hit in the face before you were convicted due to paid false witnesses? Scripture says that happened as well. Have you ever been hit in the face before you were convicted? Have you ever been accused of something you did not do and see all your friends flee from you, leave you alone in the dark, cold night? Those friends you had trusted for three years Then they left you in the hands of murderous, vile, evil people. Scripture says everyone fled away into the darkness in Gethsemane. This was the condition of your Savior and mine that night. It was very cold. Our Savior was exhausted physically. False witnesses were arranged by the high priest 
Here we see the almighty creator of this planet who could, with one word from his mouth, create a planet in space with every living thing on it. Now standing condemned by Satan, possessed men, the very men that Jesus came to save. His physical suffering was almost unimaginable, but that was not Jesus' greatest fear or concern. His humanity trembled due to the host of darkness surrounding him, realizing that his archenemy was controlling these very men. He had left the glories of heaven above to come and save, and they had sided with the evil one. His greatest agony was the possible separation from his father forever, for he was about to die in his own mind the second death. Our human minds have a difficult time, it seems, getting around the concept of Jesus and his Father in which three members of the Godhead had existed from eternity past. How can we imagine this? I believe the only way is to immerse our minds in Scripture narrative and accept it by faith and an all-powerful God. So with these thoughts in mind, let's look more closely at the seven trials of Jesus, our Redeemer. The first trial was in the court of Annas. The mob had come to arrest Jesus, was a mixture of common criminals, priests, Jewish leaders, temple police, a motley mixture to be sure. After Judas kissed him to identify him in the darkness to the Jewish leaders, Jesus fixed his gaze on them and said these words they would never forget. You come out against me with staves and swords as you would against a thief or a robber. Day by day I sat teaching in the temple. You had every opportunity of laying hands upon me, and you did nothing. The night is better suited to your kind of work. This is your hour and the power of darkness. The disciples at first paralyzed with fear suddenly fled, trying to save themselves. They all forsook their Lord. Have you ever done that? Christ had foretold this event, for he had said, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come that ye shall be scattered every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. John sixteen thirty two. Christ was hurried through the streets of Jerusalem, and it was past midnight. He was bound and closely guarded. They took him to Annas, the ex-high priest, a wily, evil man, whom the people believed spoke the word of God. And he was evil, and Satan controlled him to his very core. Everything that happened that night to the Savior was against Jewish and Roman law. Everything. A secret trial at night without the full Sanhedrin. And he was bound and hid in the face before he was convicted. Annas was trying all manner of trickery and evil to get Jesus to say something he could twist and use against him. Jewish law said that a man was innocent until proven guilty. The Jewish leaders that night condemned themselves. They violated their own rules. Jesus turned upon his questioners and said, Why askest thou me? Ask them which have heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. Annas was silenced by his answer. 
But one of Anna's servants, seeing the high priest silent, suddenly enraged, struck Jesus in the face, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Christ calmly answered, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? He came to save the man who smote him. He also came to save Annas. Christ suffered immeasurably. He suffered in proportion to the perfection of his holiness and his hatred of sin. Let's repeat that. Christ suffered immeasurably. He suffered in proportion to the perfection of his holiness and his hatred of sin. To be surrounded by humans who are under the control of Satan was repulsive to Jesus and very revolting. Christ had an overwhelming temptation to exercise his divine power. Can you imagine this temptation? If you had power to do something like that, his divine glory could have slain everyone before him in a moment. But he had made a commitment with his father from the foundation of the world to save mankind. And he would follow the plan and accept the abuse heaped upon him. The angels in heaven and around that place were hushed and silent as they watched their commander brutally tortured. But Christ had to become the sin bearer so that he might be saved. We might be saved from eternal death. Our salvation trembled in the balance. The second trial was before Caiaphas. The court of Caiaphas ordered that Jesus be sent in to be tried. Caiaphas was the current high priest. Caiaphas was equally evil and sinister. He was a Sadducee, and the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. Caiaphas had arranged for false witnesses to be bribed to accuse Jesus of inciting rebellion and starting uh, a separate government. There next was a parade of false witnesses, some of whom twisted words Jesus had said and falsely accused him, but some of these even contradicted themselves. Caiaphas was increasingly desperate. In anger he arose. He raised his right hand toward heaven and addressed Jesus and said, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. There's often a time to be silent and there's a time to speak. The moment had come. Christ knew that answering this question would be his death warrant. But his mission was called into question. His relationship to his father was called into question. Jesus had previously told his disciples, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him or her will I confess before my father which is in heaven. We are told that at that moment divinity flashed through humanity. Jesus' penetrating eyes saw right through Caiaphas to his soul. He said these immortal words, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Let's remind ourselves in the first chapter of Revelation, it says that those who pierced him and caused his death will be raised in a second resurrection, resurrection to see him coming in the clouds of heaven. Christ reversed this court scene. One day Caiaphas will be standing condemned and convicted with his eyes fixed on Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven and he will be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. Jesus forces no one to accept him. He lets all of us choose. Everyone 
everyone has a free choice. Caiaphas was terrified when he heard these words, that there would be a judgment and the dead would be resurrected to see Christ's return. This included Caiaphas himself. The words of Jesus startled this high priest. He did not treasure the thought that in the future he would be rewarded according to the work he was doing right then. For a moment he wavered, but then Satan took complete control of him as, and maddened by Satan, Caiaphas, against Jewish law, suddenly ripped his clothes, saying, What further need have we witness of? Now you have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They then all condemned him, and Caiaphas, with this act, condemned himself to eternal loss. The third and fourth trials were before the Sanhedrin. The third trial was a secret night meeting with selected members of the Sanhedrin invited to try Jesus. This was against Jewish law. The fourth trial the next morning was another trial by the Sanhedrin. As dawn broke over Jerusalem, after being up all night, Jesus was hauled into the council room. He had declared that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. This group of religious leaders, some of whom were not present during the night court, now were assembled to declare him guilty of death. It is of great interest that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were excluded. Many Old Testament scriptures were being fulfilled during these hours of trial after trial that night. Predictions from the book of Psalms, Isaiah, and the Old Testament prophets were being fulfilled. Members of the Sanhedrin shouted to Jesus, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. The Savior at first remained silent. They continued to fire questions at him. Finally, he said with sadness, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer me or let me go. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Jesus said unto them, Ye say that I am. This is an idiom of speech that in the, those days was used for a specific purpose. In this case, it meant you have said the truth. Jesus said, you say that I am. He was really saying, you have spoken the truth. The body of religious leaders who were thought to be the highest ranking men of God on the earth by the Jews of that day condemned themselves to eternal death lest they have a change of heart later in life. These men Jesus came to save and they shouted to him, what need we of any further witness for we have ourselves heard this from his own mouth. This now was the fourth condemnation or so-called trial in the past few hours. Now they thought all we have to do is convince the Roman authorities. Satan took control of the mob of people around that place that night. They tried to rush upon Jesus to destroy him right then, but the Roman officers declared that their actions were illegal. Against Roman law and against their own law, the Roman soldiers now protected Jesus from being killed right there. Someone threw a garment over his head and said, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? And when it was removed, someone spit in his face. When the trumpet sounds and Jesus rides down through the space to this earth with countless angels at his side... These Sanhedrin men and those who hit and spit, him, spit on him will see him coming through the clouds of heaven. They will be resurrected to witness this event of all the ages. The fact is that you and I will either be standing with them 
or be with those who say, Lo, this is my God. I have waited for him and he will save me. The fifth trial, Pilate's Judgment Hall. Jesus was next hauled into Pilate's Judgment Hall, brought there by the Sanhedrin. It was the weekend of the Feast of the Passover. They allowed Satan to so blind them that they did not see that Jesus was the actual Passover lamb offering. Their ceremony was about to lose all significance for them. The veil of the temple was about to be split open for all to see the most holy place, and God had departed. This had been hidden for centuries because of God's presence that was there. Now God's presence in that sanctuary was about to be withdrawn forever. When religion goes bad, it is the worst and most awful thing on the face of this earth. These Sanhedrin men would not go inside the judgment hall lest they defile themselves, thus preventing themselves from participating in the Passover. <laughs> at least that was their belief. Pilate was roused from his bed at an early hour to deal with Jesus. Pilate had heard of Jesus. He had heard of his miracles. And he had heard of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Next ensued one of the greatest conversations ever recorded in Scripture. Pilate the governor and Jesus the Savior. Jesus did not look to Pilate like a criminal. He appeared dignified and appeared to have no fear. He just did not look like the criminals Pilate saw day after day. With Caiaphas in the lead, the Sanhedrin called out for Pilate to pass judgment of death upon Jesus. Then Pilate, they asked Pilate, just trust us. We have deemed him guilty of death. Do not bother with the details, they said. Pilate took Jesus aside and spoke with him. Art thou the king of the Jews, he asked. Jesus said, thou sayest it. Again, meaning, yes, Pilate, I am. All the while the Sanhedrin were screaming to have him killed. Pilate was amazed, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold how many things they witness against you. Pilate again asked, again asked him, Are you the king of the Jews, Jesus? The conversation continued, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Jesus asked him. Christ wanted to know if Pilate was really interested to know for himself. Pilate said, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered you unto me. What hast thou done? <clears throat> Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should be delivered, be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate responded, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. Again he met, You have spoken the truth, Pilate. To this end I was born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto this truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate next asked the question of all the ages, What is truth? Jesus had answered the questions during this ministry many times when he said, Thy word is truth, and I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus was truth. He is truth. Those who accept him as truth will one day stand and look up and say, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. 
Pilate saw right through the evil schemes of the religious leaders. He knew Christ was innocent. Pilate knew Christ was innocent. But when the leaders said that Christ had spread sedition throughout the country, beginning from Galilee to this place, Pilate immediately sent him off to Herod, who was in charge of Galilee, saying, I find no fault in this man. The sixth trial, the court of Herod. So the earth's creator was hauled away again to the palace of Herod, the evil ruler who had beheaded John the Baptist. At first Herod was terror-stricken, thinking that John the Baptist had come back to life in the form of this Jesus. But he had heard of Jesus' mighty works, and he wanted to interview him and see a miracle himself that was performed by this man. In this mixed crowd of people who brought Jesus to Herod, there were those who had witnessed the miracles of Jesus and had seen Lazarus come forth from the grave. Herod demanded of Jesus that he perform a miracle for him to see, saying that if he did so, he would release him. Herod tried multiple times to question Christ. Through it all, Jesus was absolutely silent. For you see that it seemed Herod had long passed his probation for eternity. He had killed John the Baptist and was so vile that he apparently had no hope of reversing his course. Christ, by, this, by his silence, showed that Herod had made his choice for eternal death. Caiaphas and the rulers shouted, He is a traitor, a blasphemer. He works his miracles through the power given him by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Here we stand in awe, seeing the creator God being accused of being satanic. Christ's silence was offensive to this king Herod. He joined the priests and the rulers and the Jews in great anger, rushing at Christ and attempting to kill him. Again, the Roman soldiers had to intervene in saving him from death. Suddenly, divinity flashed through humanity. Herod trembled, realizing that this man was God. He was happy he could send him back to Pilate, to the Roman judgment hall. Herod's eternal night was about to engulf him. The seventh trial, back to the court of Pilate. Pilate was furious that Jesus had been sent back to him. He knew he was innocent, and yet he was weak and indecisive. He was afraid of the Jews reporting him to Caesar if he did not go along with the false accusations against Christ. Nothing had been proven against Christ so far, except there were false witnesses. All had been false witnesses. In the midst of all this confusion and shouting of the Jews, a servant delivered a letter to Pilate from his wife. In it she pleaded with him to have nothing to do with this just man. Have nothing to do with condemning this man, she said. As recorded in Scripture, she said, Have nothing to do with this just man. For I have suffered many things this day in a dream about him. <clears throat> Pilate was stricken with terror, but the screaming mob pushed him onward to his decision. Suddenly he had an idea. Barabbas, the robber, the murderer, the evildoer who was also in prison, he might be the key. So Pilate offered to release one prisoner to them. That was a custom of the day. Barabbas or Jesus? He thought they would choose Barabbas, but the mob cried out, Crucify him, crucify him, meaning Jesus. 
Pilate cried out, Why? What hath he done? Pilate rebelled against sending an innocent man to a Roman cross. But Pilate ascended and acceded to Caiaphas and his fellow priest. He allowed a crown of thorns to be placed on Jesus' head. He allowed a purple robe to be placed over the Son of God, a robe of mockery, as though he were a false king. We come again to one of the greatest conversations in Scripture, Pilate saying to Jesus, Whence art thou? Where do you come from? But Jesus was silent. Pilate became very angry, saying, Speakest thou not unto me, knowing thou not that I have the power to crucify you or power to release you? And Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me, except it were given you from above. Therefore he that delivered me to you has the greater sin. By this Jesus meant Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, the supposed highest person in the Jewish nation who spoke for God, were now putting to death God's Son. He was ignoring all the prophecies of the Redeemer from Isaiah, from the Psalms, from all the Old Testament scriptures. And Caiaphas chose for and with his people a Roman Caesar as their God in the place of the God of heaven. And Pilate then washed his hands saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just man. Imagine that. I am innocent of the blood of this just man. The words of Caiaphas and his people went to the very throne of God when they said, Crucify him, crucify him. His blood be upon us and upon our children. Uh oh. So the Son of God was pushed and dragged to the streets of Jerusalem via Della Rosa, that old road through Jerusalem, placed on a cross on Calvary's hill, there to die for your sins and mine. How can we comprehend what really happened there? A modern story, I think, helps us to do just that. Enrique was married to Maria. It was New York City. They were Italian. They were in love. One day, Enrique heard rumors that Maria was having an affair. He confronted his wife, but she denied this. One day after work, he went out to start his car to go home, but it would not start. It was winter. And it was very cold and snowing, so he decided to take the subway home that night, and he would deal with that wretched car in the morning. He came out at the nearest stop to their apartment and started down the street. He passed a restaurant. He looked through the window at the people sitting there. And way in the back, he saw Maria, his wife, sitting with this Scandinavian-looking man. They were holding hands across the table, they were drinking in from each, either, from each other's eyes. Their knees were touching. He walked on home, a broken man. A terrible wrong had been done to him, but he loved her so much he could not abandon, imagine living without her. He wondered how could he get her back. She finally came home that night, but he said nothing to her. He cried himself to sleep. He is now the bearer of her sin in a very real way. She finally speaks to him, and she, and she says, I'm moving out. She gives him back his ring. He says to her, you do not have to move out. We can fix this, Maria. She said, I am carrying this man's baby. 
Then she moved out. Enrique was despondent. He didn't know how he could go on with his work. He could not concentrate on his work in the office. He was carrying this terrible burden of her sin. Maria is abandoned by her Norwegian lover just before the baby is born. When the baby was born in the hospital, the Norwegian man was no place to be found. There was a problem for Enrique and Maria, who were olive-skinned Italians. The time comes for the baby to be born. Enrique cannot help himself. He just has to go to the hospital to be with Maria, for he is bearing her sin. The just must do something for the unjust. He brings her flowers and says, If you will come back home with a child, the little boy, well, he'll be my boy. He said, You can give him my name, and he will be my child. Maria, I will stand by your side. Maria says, Enrique, I've hurt you too much. I've wronged you so terribly. But Enrique answers, Maria, I have borne your wrong. I have suffered your wrong. I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. Maria says, I can't live with you as a policeman looking over me or as if you would lord it over me. Enrique says, I will treat you as an equal. I have borne your wrong. I will stand by your side. Enrique has now entered into the pain of her pain, but he has also entered into the consequences of her sin. Maria seems to be vacillating, but he reaches into his pocket, takes out a ring, places a ring on her finger, and says, With this ring I now do thee wed. The new covenant is now sealed. His mercy, his love, his kindness, his forgiveness and his understanding. By these, she is broken. This has a powerful effect on Maria. The little boy, as he grows up, does not look like Enrique, but make no mistake about it. Enrique is her father. By standing with Maria, he has taken away her guilt and her shame. This is just what Jesus has done for us. Our Savior was very comfortable around people who knew they were sinners. And he had a heart yearning for to be forgiven, to know the truth. That's where Jesus spent most of his time. The day outside the temple when they brought in the woman to be stoned, Jesus saved her for the kingdom by writing the sins of those who had brought her in the dust of the earth and then telling her, Where are your accusers? She looked up and said, they're all gone, Lord. They're not here. And Jesus answered, go and sin no more. Your sins are gone, for I bear them, said Jesus. That day the prodigal son came home to his father, a story Jesus told us as recorded in John. The father did not wait for him to come to the front door and knock, but ran out to meet him. When he was far away, he had with him a new robe. He had with him new sandals. He had with him a new ring. And the father said, this was my son who was dead, but he's alive again. The father was saying, I have borne your sin, 
and I've forgiven you. Throughout eternity in the heavenly land, every time we look at Jesus, we will see the scars in his forehead from the thorns, the scars in his hands and in his feet. He has borne our sin. That's what the scars mean. He's forgiven us. These words will never grow old or dusty, always as new as the first time they were written on the Isle of Patmos by the Apostle John. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads, meaning in their minds. Jesus has our scars in his forehead, but his name is written in our foreheads and in our minds. Until Jesus comes in the clouds, we can have this promise severely and securely in our minds. John writes further from the Isle of Patmos, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death. Neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. I will give unto him that is a thirst, the fountain of the water of life, freely. Freely. Do you love the word freely? Who can resist this invitation? Who can turn away from this invitation to come to the great supper in heaven, that first night in heaven? from Revelation 19, with Jesus as the host. And Jesus says, Welcome home, children. Please come and enjoy eternity with me forever. Amen.